Hello, I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, what the science of mutation tells us about the Omicron variant and the future of the COVID-19 pandemic. Compared to what emerged in late 2019 in the Chinese city of Wuhan, the new Omicron variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is highly mutated. Now, the world is waiting to see what those mutations mean. Will Omicron create a new wave of infection by setting our drive for immunity back to square one? Might it just fizzle out? Or, if it turns out to have milder symptoms, might it even deliver us from the pandemic? The stakes couldn't be higher. A lot is still unknown, but today we're talking virology to find out about some of the issues that are important when it comes to the future of COVID-19. And to do that, I'm talking to Dr. Gerald Barry, an assistant professor of virology in UCD. Gerald, almost as soon as the scientific community became aware of the latest variant, the alarm bell started ringing, and that was because of the huge number of mutations that it carries. It has 50 mutations, and by comparison, Delta had just 18 mutations. What seems to have made the concerns worse is that many of the mutations in Omicron are on the spike, which is the part of the virus that is used to get inside our cells to infect us. What do we know about those mutations and how they might change the behaviour of the virus? There's a series of mutations in this variant that are different or a combination of various mutations from other variants all combined into one. And that combination and the extent of those changes hasn't really been seen before. Over the last 18 months, we've learned so much about this virus and we've been very focused on the spike protein because that's really a key protein to allowing the virus to get into our bodies, get into our cells. And also it determines a lot about how transmissible the virus is. The spike protein itself has just over 1200 what are termed amino acids. So they're like the kind of building blocks of the protein. For each of the variants we've seen, one or two of those amino acids have changed, sometimes more, sometimes less. And each building block, when you change it, it has the potential to change the shape of the protein. And really, shape is key to how proteins work because it determines how they connect with other proteins in our body, how they're able to manipulate those proteins in our body, whether that's in manipulating our immune system or maybe just interacting with those proteins in a better way that will speed up the virus's ability to get into our cells. What the virus is constantly doing is it's trying to perfect the shape of the spike protein and other proteins that it has to essentially improve its ability to infect cells or to spread from person to person. Okay, now in my head, the virus looks like a tennis ball with a couple of spikes coming out of it. Is that kind of an accurate representation or is it possible to describe how the virus actually looks? In a way, a ball is a nice way to think about it, but I I wouldn't think about it, although we use the word spike. Spike implies this kind of pointy thing that's sticking out of the ball. That's probably not a great way to think about it. I imagine it a bit like the spike protein is shaped a little bit like a piece of popcorn. That's kind of how I imagine it. So imagine a tennis ball with loads of bits of popcorn stuck to the surface. And those bits of popcorn all look the same, but they're all a bit kind of knobbly with dips and curves and crevices and bits sticking out of them. And that's really how you have to kind of picture spike, like a a piece of popcorn. That shape is determined by 
the sequence of amino acids in that protein and how they fold together to form that kind of rough and smooth surface with dips and crevices. And the key thing is then on the surface of our cells, we have a protein called ACE2. And that's in a similar way, shaped a bit like a piece of popcorn. It has dips and crevices as well. And the spike protein, what it's trying to do is it's trying to connect with the ACE2 protein in a perfect way. And so it's trying to manipulate its crevices and and bumpy bits on the spike protein such that it fits into and grabs onto the ACE protein on the surface of our cells. Once they connect well, it acts like a lock uh, being opened by a key. So that connection will open up the cell and allow the virus to get in. So the better the connection, the more rapid the virus can get into our cells. At this stage, most people are probably familiar, at least in part, with the idea of viruses mutating and the basics of how it happens. And that's the virus replicates itself in our bodies and then sometimes it makes a mistake in how it copies itself and then sometimes the mistake can lead to the virus changing and becoming more well adapted to our bodies or more transmissible. Can you give us an example of the kinds of changes that we've seen in Omicron and what differences they might make? Yeah, so it's interesting when you look at the series of changes that have been detected in Omicron in, let's say, the spike protein, if we look at that specifically, a lot of those are common across a number of variants. But what Omicron seems to have done is, in effect, taken some of the changes from each of the different variants and combined them all into one virus to an extent. And so if we just take a couple of those and not to get too geeky on it, I suppose, there's a small little portion of the spike protein that actually has been deleted in the Omicron variant that would normally be present in something like Delta. And that deletion around position 69 of the protein, that's a really interesting change because what they found was that two different amino acids changed in an older variant. And those two changes on their own actually reduced the ability of the virus to grab onto the ACE2 protein on the surface of our cells. But when you introduce The third change, that deletion at position 69, that actually compensated and changed back the shape of the protein to actually increase the binding to ACE2. So changes can have varying impacts on the function and ability of the spike protein to bind onto ACE2. And sometimes they actually work together in synergy to compensate for each other. So one single change can be a negative, but combinations of changes can actually be a positive for the virus. And I think a key point is that although on paper we're seeing these changes in the Omicron variant, we don't know how this huge combination of changes are going to work together. And, you know, that's why we kind of look at it on paper and say, well, individually, these changes might give it an advantage. But when you put them all together, are we going to see an increased advantage again because they'll all complement each other or will they counteract each other? And actually, the virus will kind of remain the same as it was. And so I suppose that's where the hesitancy is coming from, but also the concern, because on paper, individually, these changes look quite worrying. But what we don't know is how are they going to play out when they work in synergy together. There's been a lot of hopeful speculation that Omicron could cause a milder version of COVID-19 than previous variants. But it's all speculation and most experts say it's simply too early to know whether Omicron is milder. 
One possible alternative explanation is that most of those infected with the variant in South Africa have been young or already vaccinated. But let's leave all of that to one side and talk theoretically. Is it theoretically possible for SARS-CoV-2 to evolve to become less severe? Because this process of evolution to an extent is random, it's completely possible that the virus might evolve in a way that uh, disease it causes is milder than we've seen up to this point. But at the same time, it's also completely possible that it might go in the opposite direction and become more severe. In effect, if you think about what a virus wants to do, if we if we put a personality on it for a second, what is a virus trying to do? It's trying to survive to an extent. It's trying to move between people uh, or hosts, let's say, because it could, of course, do the same thing in some animals. It's trying to move between hosts. It's trying to get into cells and make new copies of itself. And in essence, it doesn't really care about disease. What it cares about is transmission. If disease benefits that transmission, then it will evolve in a direction that will encourage that. So if, for example, somebody sneezing helps it move from person to person, then it's likely that the virus will evolve in that direction. So it is, I think it's possible to go in either direction, unfortunately, at the moment. And we we just don't know. This virus is very young in the human population. It's only really been circulating in humans for about two and a half to three years. And so in evolutionary terms, this virus is still very much in the learning process of how to deal with the immune system of a human and how to move efficiently between humans. And at this point, it's very difficult to predict what direction in terms of disease it's going to go in. We don't really have, I would say, historical evidence to point to, to say that over time viruses evolve to become milder. What we have to remember is not only are we dealing with the virus here, but we're also dealing with the host. And if you look in animals, for example, you know, we've seen examples of viruses. Like there's a really nice example, um, a a terrible story, really. But if you look at um, what was done to rabbits in Australia, so rabbits were introduced in Australia many, many years ago for hunting and for sport. But very quickly, they started to reproduce and it became a real problem because they were eating all the agricultural crops and stuff. So in Australia, they decided to release a virus into the population in the hope of controlling the numbers of rabbits in Australia. And this virus was a very aggressive virus. It would kill most rabbits that it infected. But over time, an awful lot of rabbits died, but a few rabbits survived and they started to reproduce again. And now we've reached a point where actually the disease caused by the virus is very, very mild in those rabbits. So it isn't that the virus really changed. It did change a little bit, but the host changed an awful lot because those that were susceptible died. And those that survived had a resistance to it. Now, we don't want to go in that direction because we don't want to be forced to evolve, to lose the susceptible people in the population. We want to be able to protect those, which is why we use things like vaccines. Okay, and if we could go back to the whole notion of the popcorn and the gnarly popcorn and the changes to the the, the spike that happen. In a theoretical sense, what kinds of changes to that spike happen? And how can they make people sicker? Like, What's actually going on within that kernel of popcorn to make somebody sicker or not so sick? So really what the spike protein is doing is it's, it's opening the door and allowing the virus to get into cells. So viruses need our cells to be able to make copies of themselves. They can't make copies of themselves outside of our cells. So a key step to the virus's replication cycle is actually getting into the cell. The more efficiently it does that 
the more likely it is to be able to make copies of itself. And of course, the more virus you have, the higher the possibility of disease. Also, the ability for the virus to move between people is dependent on its ability to grab onto that next person. And in a Velcro-like way, the spike protein grabbing onto the ACE2 receptor on our cells um, determines how easily a virus will infect that next person. Because if that connection is really strong between spike and ACE2, then it's more likely the virus will grab onto you, get into your cells and make new copies of itself and spread down kind of deeper into your lung. So really, that's a critical point in the in the cycle of the virus, not only from a transmission point of view, but also actually getting into your cells. And once it gets in, as I say, it corrupts our cells. It turns them into virus-making factories. It starts to make its own proteins, and it stops our cells making cellular proteins that the cell would normally make. And new virus starts getting pumped out of those cells, and that's how you get spread. So on a very simplistic level, would it be the case that the more virus we have in our systems, the sicker we get? Yes, essentially, because what the virus is doing is it's moving through the body as it infects cells. As I say, it turns those cells into virus making factories. And in response to that, our cells commit suicide to try and kind of trap the virus inside and shut down the factory and limit the amount of virus that's being produced, our cells will commit suicide. And so the more virus you have, the more cells that die and the more damage that call, that's caused to our tissue. Now, remember, our body has billions and billions of cells, so we can afford to lose a few, particularly in areas where you have new production of cells all the time. But what you don't want is you don't want too many cells dying because that's when you start to get tissue damage. And what happens then is our immune system, in response to the virus infection, kicks off all these different types of armies of immune cells and they'll come in and try and mop up the virus, will try and produce antibodies against it. If the virus persists for too long, what can happen is the immune system can basically get overexcited, can go out of control a little bit and actually start to cause tissue damage itself. And that's what we see with a lot of very severely ill people with SARS-CoV-2 and not just SARS-CoV-2, but also influenza. This can happen as well and a number of other viruses where actually the virus causes damage to an extent. But if the immune system can't clear it, it starts ramping up and ramping up and ramping up and actually starts to cause damage to the body itself. And that's why in terms of treatment, a lot of the treatments in severely ill people is not necessarily against the virus, but is actually to try and dampen down the immune response a little bit and turn that down a little bit to stop damage being caused. But at the root of it is lots and lots of virus spreading through the body and, and driving that uh, overactive immune response. So yes, we need to try and limit the amount of virus in our bodies because that can lead to all the other consequences that we see in terms of disease. Now, many of us have become amateur virologists over the last two years in a way that I suspect might make you throw your eyes to the heavens every now and then. We know about the common cold and we know that's caused by uh, coronaviruses. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like SARS, the original SARS. That had a mortality rate of around 10%. And I think the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome had a mortality rate of around 40%. Now, COVID-19 is kind of on the lower end of the mortality scale. 
So what makes the difference between how these related viruses, all of these different coronaviruses act on our cells and on our bodies? And why do some of them kill so many people and then others don't really kill anybody at all? I think what we have to remember is that all these viruses are slightly different. They're, they're different in the way that they interact with our cells. They're different in the way that they replicate. They're different in the way that they move between people. Basically, what's happening is that when a virus gets into a cell, it produces lots and lots of proteins. And each of those proteins has a very particular shape and a very particular job. And it's essentially how efficiently those proteins do their job inside our cells will determine how efficiently the virus produces new particles and spreads through our body. And if that virus is able to do it in a very efficient way, then that potentially increases the number of virus particles in our body and it allows it to overcome our immune system more efficiently. And that's really a key point. It's our, the ability of our immune system to defend the body and at the same time, the ability of the virus to overcome that immune system, that a lot of the time will determine the disease outcome. So some viruses have evolved very efficient ways of overcoming the immune system or dampening down the immune system such that they can start to replicate through the body very well. And of course, the other thing that some viruses will do is they'll target different organs and different parts of the body in a more aggressive fashion. But ultimately, it comes down to that balance between the immune system's ability to stop the virus and the virus's ability to stop the immune system. And viruses are constantly kind of evolving ways of changing the shape of their proteins to try and improve their ability to stop the immune system. And at the same time, our immune system is evolving and adapting to try and stop those viruses overcoming the immune system. When a lot of people read about the new variant, I think the thing that made most people most upset was this notion that it could evade the immunity that we've all spent the past two years painfully developing through vaccination programmes or in a more severe sense through infections. It's again too early to say whether the Omicron variant evades immunity, either acquired from vaccination or prior infection. But a lot of experts are saying that based on the mutations it has, that it's quite likely that it will evade the immunity response that we've developed. But we do have more than one kind of immunity here. And is there hope that the mutations may diminish some of our immunity, but not all of it? And could you maybe very briefly explain how that might work? Yeah, I think it's a really important point. So there are two main arms to our kind of long-term immunity and, and kind of memory based on what we call our B cells and our T cells. Our B cells are primarily responsible for producing antibodies. These are these kind of Y-shaped little molecules that will be produced by plasma cells in our body. And those antibodies will bind onto virus particles and stop them infecting our cells. So that's a really key arm of our defense. But there's a second level to that, which is driven by T cells. Now, T cells are a bit like the attack dogs of the immune response. They can be really aggressive and will go around and hunt for infected cells. And if they find an infected cell, they will actively destroy that infected cell, again, in the hope of destroying the virus that's inside it. A lot of the experiments that are carried out in the lab to look at a virus's ability to overcome uh, what we term neutralization by antibody doesn't look at the other arm of the immune response, the T cell. And so even if the changes, and I should say actually, the changes in the spike protein, really what we're worried about there is by changing the shape of the spike, 
it will disrupt the ability of our antibody response to bind onto the virus because the antibody response is targeting the spike protein. But what we're not thinking about or maybe we're maybe less concerned about is the ability of the virus to overcome that T cell response because that tends to be a lot broader and tends to target not just key regions on spike but actually the whole protein. It's interesting to look at Omicron when you look at the changes that are happening or have happened in the spike protein. There are three key antigenic regions in spike and by antigenic region I mean three key regions on the spike protein that antibodies target primarily. One of the concerns is that there was experiments done in in labs in the US about six months ago and they artificially introduced mutations into the spike protein in the lab and they found that if you made three key changes to three key amino acids in the spike protein, that that dramatically reduced the ability of antibodies to bind onto spike. And this Omicron variant has those three key changes. Now, that's not to say that it's going to overcome our immune response completely. We don't really fully understand that. But it suggests, at least on paper, this variant will have the ability to avoid the traditional antibody response that we all have as a result of vaccines. But it must be stressed that that does not necessarily mean that we're back to square one. Because we have that second layer of T-cell response, I think we need to be mindful of that because the first results that are going to come out over the next few weeks from laboratory experiments are going to be based on that ability of antibody to bind onto the spike. And so even if we see a drop in that what's termed neutralization, we can't forget that we have that second layer that will kick in very aggressively if we do get infected. Okay, well, that's good news. But what isn't good news is the speed at which the virus is mutating. I think it's mutating much faster than the scientific community might have hoped when the pandemic began. Can we actually win the race against mutations? Can we develop a vaccine that can't be evaded? Or can we develop updated vaccines quickly enough that we stay ahead of the virus? Yeah, I think we can. I think, you know, in theory with coronaviruses, when they make copies of themselves, we know that they make mistakes. But they have a system what's called proofreading. And so when the virus makes mistakes, it's a bit like if you make a typo when you're typing in Microsoft Word, you can go back and change it. That proofreading ability of coronaviruses in theory slows down their changes, but it's not perfect. And so you still get changes. Now, when you look at something like influenza, influenza lacks that proofreading ability. So the rate of change is much higher in theory with influenza. But I think what we need to think about with with SARS-CoV-2 is it's in a completely new organism at the moment. It's learning or trying to evolve and adapt at a very rapid rate. And so that's increasing probably the likelihood of changes um, much more than theoretically we would have maybe imagined with with a standard coronavirus two or three years ago. And what's coming down the line are kind of second generation vaccines that are not specifically targeting spike, but they'll target multiple proteins inside the virus. Because we know that spike is changing very rapidly, but there are other proteins of the virus that are critical proteins to the virus, but that are not changing at anywhere near the same rate. And so likely the next generation of vaccines that we have will target not only the rapidly changing and important protein spike, but will also seek to target other proteins that are maybe not changing as quickly. 
And so what, again, you're building into the immune response as a result of that second generation of vaccine is multiple layers of defense so that if spike is different, it's okay because we have antibodies that target other proteins of the virus at the same time. So the hope being that we will get to a point where although we may we may not have the perfect vaccine, we maybe don't have to update the vaccine as regularly as we're going to have to do if we just focus on spike. I wonder what living with COVID is like, because for months we've heard talk that that's what we're going to be doing, that we're going to move from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase, and then the virus will just become another thing that we have to guard against, like influenza or even like the common cold. Is there a scientific basis for expecting that to happen? I think the the word endemic is kind of thrown around um, to suggest that this is going to become a mild infection like any other common cold that we deal with. Really what endemic means is it's going to be with us. Um, It's not going to go away and it's going to be with us long term. You know, and it's going to be geographically located in Ireland or potentially across the world for a long time. Endemic does not mean that the virus is suddenly going to become mild. Uh, It doesn't mean that suddenly we're going to just deal with it like any other common cold. Now, that may happen, but that kind of uh, change could take hundreds of years, potentially. So really what endemic means is what we're seeing at the moment is potentially what we're going to have to live with for a long period of time. And so we have to recognize that in order for us to be able to live with that, we either have to have regular boosters with a vaccine that will uh, protect the vast majority of the population from severe illness and ideally from even transmitting the virus. But also in combination with that, we have to ask the question, can our current health system cope with everything we've dealt with up to now, but then if we throw in multiple infections from SARS-CoV-2 at the same time, really that is not going back to where we were in 2019. That's where we were in 2019 with a whole lot more on top. That's the really key thing that we actually need to adapt as a society to the idea of this virus becoming endemic, because what it'll mean is everything we dealt with previously and more. And so we need to build not only a health system to deal with that or to enable us to deal with that, but also um, potentially a regular regime of boosters that hopefully control the transmission as well as um, severe illness as a result of this infection. This is not a virus that's going to go away anytime soon um, and it's not a virus or at least it doesn't appear likely that this virus is going to suddenly overnight become a mild infection. So we need to, I think, realise and recognise that um, and we need to adapt rather than waiting for the virus to adapt. Dr. Gerald Barry, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. Thanks to Dr. Gerald Barry. In the News is back on Monday.